0: Looking at conscience. So, the reading was the the section on conscience in the Catechism. Before we do anything about conscience, though, I want to make a a sense of disclaimer. Um, I've had you read Pincare's on moral theology, a bit of his history. You're going to read a bit more about him on the question of what exactly is a virtue. Pincare's and the overview of moral philosophy, theology that I follow with him, we would complain that we really don't want conscience in our study of the moral life. That conscience is only there as a relic of a legalistic uh, mindset of what the moral life is about. That if the moral life is about, am I guilty? Am I to blame? Is it my fault? Uh, If these are the questions in morality, then conscience is very important. Whereas, if the questions in the moral life are, is this good? Is this in keeping with its end? Is this giving me a partaking of the virtuous life? Then conscience just isn't really that relevant. So if you look at the Summa Theologica, you know, you can have your big fat five volumes of St. Thomas how much does St. Thomas say about conscience in there? He's got three brief articles in there. So he does treat it, and we're gonna quote him today, but it's a small thing in his analysis. For St. Thomas, the question is, is this good or is this evil? The question, am I guilty, am I to blame, isn't a big thing for him. Now, because in the tradition it has become a big thing, the catechism is, putting it in here, and so we are going to look at what the Catechism says. But I'm just wanting to kind of make that disclaimer. Um, Conscience has become overrated in the moral analysis. So, mind mapping what we're going to look at today. So we're thinking about conscience. We are going to consider what conscience is. We're going to note some metaphors, that it's a place, that it's a voice. A faculty will note a bit more precisely. Um, we're going to ask the question why you should follow it. Yeah, why should you follow your conscience? I'm going to say briefly, it looks like God's law. So if something looks to you as if it's the law of God, then you should do it. Even if you're mistaken in thinking that it's not the law of God or is the law of God if you think this is what God's law is then obviously that's what you should do and that's what conscience is going to tell you (sighs) linked with that why should you follow it when it's wrong um so the catechism is very clear in saying, as you will have read, even when your conscience is wrong, you should follow it. Yes.
1: Why should you, or why would you? You,
0: you should. should you should follow it. it because you think it's the right thing. If you knew it was wrong, you, you wouldn't then. It, that wouldn't then be your conscience. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe my conscience tells me I should never have donuts. That I've been raised a good Puritan, I think enjoying myself is a bad thing. My conscience tells me you shouldn't have a donut. But my conscience is erroneous. My conscience is telling me I shouldn't do it. Now, I might enjoy the donuts anyway and ignore my conscience. I think it's the wrong thing to do, but I do it anyway. But actually I didn't realize it was an okay thing to do all along. So all the time in the pattern of sin, we do things we think are wrong. So your conscience may tell you not to do it, but you do it anyway. So one of the confusing scenarios we're gonna look at this morning is, when your conscience is wrong, but you don't follow it, and you kind of do the right thing by mistake. Um, Are you blameworthy or praiseworthy for that? Because you thought you shouldn't do it, and you did it anyway. Come on to that, okay. Um, We're gonna look at the question briefly, how to form your conscience. Um, And then a slightly different question of why follow it when it's wrong is when are you blameworthy? So your conscience makes a mistaken judgment. Sometimes it's your fault it's mistaken. You just weren't bothered to find out the truth. So you come to A judgment, a conclusion, your conscience tells you something erroneously, and the mistake is your fault. You just won't bother to find out. So, the donuts that were in the theology mailroom, were those left there for me as well? And I just don't give it too much thought, and I, I have a couple. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> well apparently they were in there this morning and I was very good and I said to myself those were put there for the seminarians so I won't go and have one um, <laughs> but my point is I could easily have just not given it too much thought and deliberately I'm just not going to think about it don't, don't be too scrupulous don't be too scrupulous and just had another yeah um, we have a duty to figure out what's right and wrong. And particularly, an example like that, something that's someone else's property, to think, actually, do I have a right to this or not? Is this pile here for the collegians? Or is it for the theologians? Or for the professors? You know, these, so we have a duty to find out what's right and wrong. And if you don't bother to find out, then actually you're to blame for your mistaken judgment. Okay, we are also going to note uh, so I said m- a metaphor. We're going to note a strict definition of conscience. As in the catechism, conscience is an act, a judgment of reason. by the intellect about the rightness or wrongness of an action. Okay so you have an intellect yeah your intellect a judgement of reason by the intellect your intellect makes a judgement about something and we say that if your conscience is judging correctly that it's a it's a right conscience And that's a matter of your intellect. You could, conversely, have a wrong conscience. Do you all know the phrase, to act in good conscience? Yeah. So Hunter ate my donut this morning, but he did it in good conscience. Yeah, he thought it was his donut. So the phrase, you do it in good conscience. Whereas, um, when we say, when you act in bad conscience, you're actually going against your conscience. And that's in the will, how you choose to act. So there, you have a good conscience, if you are following it in the decisions of your will, or a evil conscience if in your will you go against what your conscience is judged so you can have a a good right conscience So, you are correct in your judgment, it is right. You are good in that you choose to follow it. So the will and the intellect are working together here. A right conscience and you are good in your will in that you follow that judgment. You could also have a good but wrong conscience yeah so back to what I was saying generally speaking when we say well he acted in good conscience we mean in his will he decided to do what his conscience told him But if your conscience is wrong, it's a good but wrong conscience, and that the judgment is mistaken in its intellectual judgment. Whereas, and this is where it gets a bit complicated, um, you can also have... um, just going to change that colour, if you haven't written that already, to not make it green because it's kind of neither good nor evil at that stage or it's not clear. Um, you can have an evil but right conscience. So, your intellect has judged correctly, therefore it is a right conscience, but your action is evil in that you choose not to follow it. going to come back to the question of blameworthy, and I've got a a little bit more to squeeze in here, but I'll write that in later. So this is the overview of what, what we're going to do this morning. So an overview, you're with me, you understand what we're talking about? Okay, let's turn to my lecture notes. Um, and we've got various quotes from the catechism we're going to go through here with some explanations. So page one, if you skip down to the section titled, What? What is conscience? And I note two popular metaphors. Who can tell me what a metaphor is? Collegians still doing literature. Uh, and it kind of isn't something. So when we say God is a rock, scripture says God is a rock. Is he a rock? No, but he kind of is. It's saying something true, but it's also untrue. And with God, the difference is always even bigger than the similarity, but the metaphor is truly telling us something. So with these things, these metaphors to describe conscience, it actually isn't this, but this does say something. So, a place. So, um, the Catechism quotes Gaudium et Spes from Vatican II saying, conscience is man's most secret core and his sanctuary. But there isn't a place inside you that is your conscience. Yeah, so it isn't literally a place, but it is meaningful to use that metaphor a much more common metaphor, probably the dominant metaphor, is to call it a voice. A voice calling him to do what is good and to avoid evil. How many of you have seen Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket? Yeah, so he's, he's the conscience, he's telling him the right thing to do. But we don't literally hear a voice, do we? Um, but this is the most common metaphor. Um, That there is somehow this sense of being told, hearing from outside myself, this is right, that is wrong. That's what we mean in the most common metaphor for conscience. Uh, I'm not going to note linguistically, but just be wary when you're reading the Bible. The word conscience in the Bible, if it's translated that way, does not mean what later scholastic tradition has Taken it to mean. Um, the word conscience begins to evolve in the New Testament, but it's is complicated. Um, so just be be aware. Um, it's a technical term. Um, so I note the Old Testament Hebrew refers to the heart. It also will refer to kind of the The belly, the guts, you feel something right or wrong. Um, The Old Testament doesn't use the word conscience at all. The word conscience evolves in the New Testament, but even isn't in the precise sense in which we'd have it in the Catechism and such. Okay, page two. So I'm now going to try and articulate, quoting St. Thomas, quoting the Catechism, quoting Veritatis Splendor, a precise definition, not a metaphor. What is conscience? So I quoted at the top there, a precise definition. Conscience is an act, a judgment of reason, an act of the intellect. I so say this definition uses, is used by St. Thomas, the Catechism in Veritatis Splendor. This approach, I say, says, well, there's only two faculties in the human person. There's the intellect and the will. So you don't need to have some other faculty, the conscience that the intellect judges practical matters and the will carries them out. So that what is conscience is an act of your intellect of judging. Now less precisely but also quite commonly even in your moral theology books, conscience will sometimes be called a faculty. I say a faculty which would include reason and will and I know this is the terminology of figures like Cardinal Newman and the pre-Vatican II manuals. So you will sometimes, in the technical books, hear reference to the faculty of your conscience and the proper use of that faculty and the development of that faculty. Um, understand what I'm saying here? Yeah, so it's... It's an act, a judgment of your, your thinking, your reasoning about what to do. Is this right? Is this wrong? Now I asked the key question here, why? Why is conscience binding? Binding meaning you have to do what it says. You hear this voice saying, don't do that, that's wrong. Or, you must do that, that's the right thing to do, if you don't do this, that would be wrong. Why is it binding that I must follow my conscience? Well, St. Thomas phrases it this way. Reason says, this is God's law. Thus, to spurn reason is to spurn God's law. Now we're gonna come on to this, again, we've already used this word reason already. Basically reason is all of what philosophy can tell you. More broadly here even, reason means all your intellect can tell you. So your intellect drawing on the Bible, drawing on the Catechism, drawing on what the sermon last week said. Your intellect, your reason, your reason tells you this is what God's law is saying. So if you ignore it, you're ignoring God's law. And that's pretty serious. And therefore, you must follow your conscience. Reading what I've said there, so the authority of reason, um, and note when we're going to come back in a couple of weeks, when we look at natural law, this what we mean by reason and its authority. Repeating what we've noted already, um, reason is the measure of a human act, and that an act... Devoid of reason isn't a human act, even as I say, even if it is an act of a human. So I burp, I hiccup, that's an act of a human, but it's not a human act. My rationality didn't choose to do that or choose to restrain it. And so why does conscience have authority? I say because conscience is a judgment of reason, according to the Catechism, and reason has authority. And then I briefly note, as footnoting from the Catechism, the freedom of conscience. I say the freedom of conscience is an immediate consequence of the recognition of its authority. Michael.
1: Um, so with reason says this is God's law, that's just for reason is to God's law. That makes it seem as if God's law is just what your apparent reason thinks it is. In the case of conscience
0: that's what conscience means Yeah, that it, it, this appears to be God's law but your conscience might be mistaken and that often is mistaken so the point is because conscience is being, can be mistaken it's not infallible your conscience tells you it's God's law but that doesn't necessarily mean it is but you think it is That makes.
1: Relative.
0: relative in what sense? What?
1: Well, I think this is God's law. Do you think it's this? It, can, yeah. well, I guess the goal then would be we need to educate ourselves on what it actually is.
0: Right, and we're going to come on to that point, the need to educate your conscience. But if you genuinely think that is right, that's what you should do. Um, Now, if you also hear a voice telling you, but I'm not sure, and maybe you should ask someone else's wise opinion about this, that little voice telling you, you need to ask someone about this, that actually is conscience as well. Because often our conscience tells you, you're not sure here, you need some more advice. And... freedom of conscience, I shouldn't impose my will on Josh, I should allow him to make his own action because that's what he genuinely thinks is right. If I stop him doing what he thinks is right, I'm going to be causing him to do something he thinks is wrong and therefore he would be blameworthy for, for it. So recognizing the authority of conscience also goes with that, acknowledging the freedom of somebody else's conscience, unless they're going to hurt somebody else by what they do or they're going to do some kind of direct harm to themselves. Let's keep going on. Uh, Some of these later stages, some of these other things will all, the significance of them all become more clear. So the first thing where, in a sense, the rubber starts hitting the road is top of page three, the question of an erroneous conscience. Uh, Michael, can you read that first quote from the Catechism for us?
1: A human being must always obey the certain judgment of his conscience. If he were deliberately to act against it, he would condemn himself. Yet it can happen that moral conscience remains in ignorance and makes erroneous judgments about acts to be performed are already committed.
0: So the Catechism says you must always obey the certain judgment of your conscience. But your conscience can be ignorant. But you still should follow it. you don't, What else would you follow if you didn't follow your conscience? and whatever answer you would give me that's really what you mean by conscience. So if you're saying well you should follow what the church says not what your conscience says what you're really saying is your conscience is telling you to obey the church. Okay now quote St Thomas directly on this point. When erring reason proposes something as being commanded by God, then to scorn the dictate of reason is to scorn the commandment of God. And as I've written there what I just said out loud, if I was not to obey the judgment of my conscience, what else could I obey? Uh, anyone want to try and answer that question in terms of what you're thinking or how clear this is what I'm trying to articulate? What else you would obey? Michael?
1: Like what, could you offer, what else could you offer as an answer? Yeah. Well, you could say something like the categorical imperative, but that's just version of his conscience. Because
0: what you think is the categorical imperative is what your conscience is telling you right. is the categorical imperative. Because people disagree about what they think the categorical imperative is saying about particular things. It's their conscience telling them that, um, but yeah, that's a good example. Francisco, did you have... Obedience? To whom?
2: To your superiors? Uh-huh. Like military men. Go raid this village. In good conscience, I cannot do that, but I'm going to follow my, my superiors' command.
0: Okay, let's look at that a couple different ways. One person's conscience would say, "I'm bound to obey my superior." The captain says so; therefore, even though this doesn't seem make sense to me, I'm bound to obey the co- captain in conscience, and therefore I do it. But no, I'll,
2: I'll have a conflict
0: of conscience. Okay, and we're going to come on to that scenario in a minute a conflicted conscience, a perplexed conscience where you're hearing kind of different things coming at you. What are you to do? In a sense the clearest example of what you're outlining the soldier, um, the soldier knows that he shouldn't go into that village and just shoot the civilians the way his captain is telling him to. The captain wants you to terrorize that population by shooting a bunch of civilians. The soldier being told to do that knows that's contrary to right reason, contrary to a Catholic faith. So he knows what his captain is telling him is contrary to the moral law. He also knows he's bound to obey his captain, which has priority. His conscience is going to make an evaluation what he must do. That's what we mean by conscience, is that sense, I hear all these things and I come to the conclusion this is what I'm required morally to do. And in that case, he should disobey his captain, even if it's at the expense of his own life in order to do what he knows to be right. Namely not to go and shoot innocent civilians. Linked with this, the erroneous conscience, blameworthy or unblameworthy error. So, you know, to state the obvious, sometimes you're mistaken and it's not your fault. Sometimes you're mistaken and kind of, it is your fault. You should have found out. So, what do I say here? Ignorance of error does not necessarily excuse. Uh, Adam, can you read the next quote from the Catechism?
2: Uh, 1791? Yeah. This ignorance can often be imputed to personal responsibility. This is the case when a man takes little trouble to find out what is true and good, or when conscience is by degrees almost blinded through the habit of committing sin. In such cases, the person is culpable for the evil he commits."
0: Then I quote um, a moral philosopher, Ralph McInerney, "One is obliged to act on his own judgment, but he may be responsible for making the judgment he does. As St. Thomas puts it, an erroneous conscience may bind, but it does not excuse. Now let's pause and unpack this for a minute. Um, Blinded through the habit of committing sin. So there are some things you do, many times, sins, that blind your ability to see the truth. Um, You know I like donuts. Um, Glossony is one of the examples of this. Right measure by habituation of overindulging just what looks the right measure to me is an erroneous judgment. My, my habit of sin clouds my ability to make a correct judgment about that. Whereas if I have a habit of making a good measure of food I come to the buffet in the ref and I just habitually make the right measure. So my sin can blind my ability to see the truth. And what am I saying? All my past sins are blinding my ability at this moment to make a correct judgment. So it's my own fault that I can't make that correct judgment. My ignorance is my responsibility. It's imputed to me. Blameworthy ignorance. Whereas um, in the refectory, um, there's a nice little sheet up there describing the calorific content of whatever. um, And I think, ah, that's utterly fine. And that many portions will be utterly appropriate for me. Um, But actually that sheet was supposed to be on the other container. um, And I grossly overindulge, feel, terribly sick, can't function for the rest of the day. Um, It was an erroneous judgment, but it wasn't my fault. Is that as a basic concept fairly clear? Sometimes it's your fault you're in error, sometimes it's not your fault you're in error.
1: Yeah. So what would you be guilty, in the, the case that you didn't put in the effort to find out who was blinded by sin, are you guilty for the ignorance more, or the act itself more, a combination of both?
0: It's a good question. And are you, is it more serious? Um, I think that's going to depend somehow in every situation. Um so as the catechism describes it the sin itself is imputed to you it doesn't say ignorance is imputed to you Um, so that's kind of how the catechism would describe it
2: how about uh, some type of chemical dependency or addiction obviously I made that conscious choice to, to inject heroin but now I'm addicted to it and every day I do it
0: Um, Do you know it's wrong? Mm -hmm. Okay, then the conscience question, which is what we're looking at today, because I know I've used the example of a habit, but we're not yet at the part of the catechism looking at habits and virtues and vices. We will get there. At this stage, we're only thinking about habit in as much as it clouds your ability to make a right judgment. So there's the heroin addict who is addicted, knows he shouldn't, but it's just, he's really weak and it has this hold on him. He knows he shouldn't, but he does it anyway. He has an evil right conscience, because he knows what's right, but in his will he chooses what he knows to be evil. The degree to which he is to blame does um, his habitual dependence is going to, on one level, could reduce his guilt, but if it's his choice that he got into that situation, and he's not making due effort to try and get out of it, we can kind of choose to remain in our various bad habits and dependencies okay your conscience you must obey it. it is what you think is God's will it can be an error even when it's an error you are bound to follow it but blameworthy and unblameworthy error sometimes you are following an erroneous conscience and you're to blame for it and the sin is imputed to you. Other times you're following an erroneous conscience and it's not your you aren't to blame for your error and the sin isn't imputed to you.
2: But regardless you must follow your conscience?
0: In all of those situations, that's what we mean by conscience. Your judgment about what's right and wrong. You're bound to follow it. Now, a lot of the time, our conscience isn't quite as clear-cut as everything we've mapped out so far. Your conscience is, is, to some extent, perplexed. That's our next category, over the page. So here on page four, we've got two categories at the top, a doubtful conscience, a perplexed conscience, So the manuals of theology before the Second Vatican Council, as I said, they had a lot about conscience, a big concern about obligation, duty, am I to blame, am I not to blame? Um, So two of the categories they looked at was the question of a doubtful conscience. Uh, And both of these I'm quoting from a manual by uh, a chap called Karl Peschke. Um, Josh could you read the first quote for us?
3: doubt about the lawfulness of an action one may not act
0: and I note in a future lecture we're going to have a mortal sin we'll look at this question again but we're noting it briefly here so the donut in the theology mailroom I'm not sure whether I as a professor am allowed to have one of those I'm in doubt therefore I don't act I don't have the donut. That's the kind of general principle. You're in doubt about whether it's it's right, therefore do nothing. So I might be in doubt about the fact of, is that donut for me? Or I might be in doubt about whether I should have donuts at all, about the moral law. Okay, perplexed conscience. Um, Jake, could you read this category for us? So this is quoting from the same author. The
3: perplexed conscience is a type of erroneous conscience which, in the conflict of duties, fears sin in whatever choice it makes. In such instances, if the decision can be delayed, one must first postpone the action in order to obtain information and deliberate on it. But if the decision cannot be postponed, one must choose what appears to be the lesser evil, or, if this is impossible to settle, either of the alternatives. Such conflicts more readily occur in individuals who are less acquainted with the moral norms.
0: Okay, so there's a conflict of priorities here, and you just don't know which one you should do. And in that situation you've got to do something, what, what do you do? There's a conflict of choices. In reality, if you could sift it all through properly, there's never a real conflict. There's always a correct analysis. But there's a lot of time when we just don't have enough time to make a proper analysis. So what do you do? The general advice, do what seems to be less evil. They both look evil in some sense, what seems less evil
1: so would this help become most people were like in a trolley problem situation yeah okay
0: yeah, yeah. and trolley problem dilemmas um, a certain type of ethicist loves, but they're almost always fairly fake dilemmas. Um, The line there, such conflicts more readily occur in individuals who are less acquainted with the moral norms. As a future pastor, that's a very important line for you to remember, uh, become familiar with. You will have again and again parishioners that will come to you with some moral dilemma and they'll say, oh, it's very complicated, isn't it? And you're there listening, thinking, this isn't complicated at all. This is complicated because you've actually never bothered to seriously think about the ethics of what you do every day at work. And therefore, the first time you are sitting down and seriously thinking about whether what you're doing is theft or not, it seems very complicated. But when you get in a habit of ethically thinking about a situation, many of these things become clear. And that means on one level we need to be patient with people that are beginning to think about things, in a sense to praise them rather than say, well, that's because you're such a lousy sinner, you've never even thought about this before. <laughs> yeah? Uh, um, so it's a good thing when we're with somebody, but sometimes we have to patiently walk people through those things. Sorry. No, I was just. Uh,
1: you answered my question.
0: You sure? Yeah. Okay. Um, you get a lot of this as a pastor 23 years a priest, it is one of the joys of being a priest to walk people through this and then see them reach a stage where they're no longer saying, oh it's very complicated isn't it? Um, you know should I sleep with my girlfriend or not? can seem very complicated or not? Um, Should we share a bed in a cheap motel because we want to save some money? Seems very complicated uh, the first time you're thinking about it. Um, So the doubtful conscience, the perplexed conscience. A lot of the time our conscience isn't utterly convinced. A lot of the time our conscience there's something in there saying I'm not sure. So if you can wait, wait get some more advice, um, find some more facts. If you can't wait, the perplexed do what at least seems to be less evil. Okay, next section here The need to educate conscience, what we call formation of conscience. So um, let's go around the room here and each read one of these paragraphs. Um, John Paul, can you start at the back? As the general principle, your conscience needs to be informed. Um, Eric, can you read the next paragraph?
1: The education of the conscience is a lifelong task. From the earliest years, it awakens the child to the knowledge and practice of the interior law recognized by conscience. Prudent education, education which is virtue, it prevents or cures fear, selfishness, and pride, resentment arising. Guilt, and feelings of of human weakness and faults. The education of the conscience guarantees, guarantees freedom and engenders peace of
0: heart. Awakens the child, so obviously we're talking about educating conscience. This is one of the big tasks of parents to educate their children. To say, don't hit your little sister. You know, that was something I had to be told, in fact, several times. Um, <laughs> It wasn't uh, innate knowledge within me. Um, The child gets told things repeatedly by the parent until the child just knows those things. Um, Don't steal. Don't pick on little people. Don't call people names. You get educated um, as a child, but a lifelong task. Michael, next paragraph
1: the formation of conscience, the Word of God is the light for our path. We must assimilate it in faith and prayer and put it into practice. We must also examine our conscience before the Lord's cross. We are assisted by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, aided by the witness or advice of others, and guided by the authoritative authoritative teaching of the Church.
0: Word of God, Bible, authoritative teaching of the Church. You're reading the Catechism. You need a source. be doing that formation of your conscience. Um, Adam, can you read the next paragraph?
2: Man is sometimes confronted by situations that make moral judgments less assured and decision difficult, that he must always seriously seek what is right and good and discern the will of God expressed in divine law.
0: So emphasizing that seeking, your conscience has to be seeking to know right and wrong. A conscience that is kind of content to be passive is in itself a conscience in a state of deformation. A conscience is actively wanting to know more. Brother Adam, ignorance of Christ.
1: Ignorance of Christ and his gospel, bad example given by others, enslavement to one's passions, assertion of a mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience, Rejection of the church authority and her teaching. Lack of conversion and of charity. These can be at the source of errors, of judgment, and moral conduct.
0: Okay, now there's a lot in that paragraph. Shall we pull apart some of those? Um, mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience. Yeah, I do we hear a lot of people say, well, it's okay with my conscience. Don't care what the church says. Um... Now that, in a sense, is a good Protestant conscience, because a good Protestant thinks that there is no real church authority. Uh, so in a sense, it might be wrong for a Protestant to do something just because the Pope says so. Um, but in our culture, it's most common, this autonomy. No one's going to tell me what to do You know, who's that priest to tell me I shouldn't be doing that? Um, A mistaken notion of autonomy of conscience. That part of my conscience working is my conscience learning from others. My conscience wanting the advice of my pastor. And even when you're a priest and a pastor yourself, your conscience wanting the advice of your bishop wanting to hear what your brother priests are saying. Um, not just saying, well, I've decided, this is what my conscience is saying. Lack of conversion. So again, when we harden our heart, um, our conscience isn't going to function properly. A heart that is always seeking deeper conversion is going to be always wanting to look more closely what's right and wrong is there something where I've just blinded myself here in how I'm interacting with people Josh the last paragraph on the page there
3: the church not only proposes immutable moral truths and attitudes which go against the grain. It also proposes them as the key to the good of humanity and social development. Christians have the mission of taking up this challenge. The education of consciences therefore becomes a priority.
0: Okay, Um, so we've kind of covered all of our principles here. What questions, comments, scenarios? Do we want to bandy about? Francisco, do you have a question still? Or did it get answered? It got answered. Do you mind sharing what the question was?
2: Uh, sure. It <laughs> uh, has to deal more with, like, I guess past judgment. Like you, like like in in seventeen ninety four says a good and pure conscience is enlightened by true faith. For for charity, pro- proceed at the same time. Like, but like you, you sin, you commit sin, you are a fault, you go to confession. But sometimes that sin is still like still like you still have like a guilty conscience so it's not a pure conscience I don't know it's hard to it.
0: you mean that you're still feeling guilt uh-huh. mm. that's yeah i don't think that's really conscience that's um Or it might be a different aspect of our conscience um, telling us we still need to do something about our sin. So one of the conditions of genuine sorrow for sin is wanting to undo the damage of our sin, to make reparation for my sin. So I hurt somebody by what I said to them last week. And I know I hurt them and that they are hurting. I've been forgiven in confession, but genuine sorrow wants to make reparation. How can I make reparation? Well, sometimes that's what your conscience might be nagging at you, saying you, you, need to, you have been forgiven, you're absorbed, but you need to put this right somehow. Sometimes if I've said something offensive to someone, I can put it right by talking to them Sometimes I've kind of stuck my foot in it, and I can't make it right in what I say. But I can pray for them, I can be keeping an eye out for them in other ways, so in other ways to be making reparation.
3: I had a question, back with the blameworthy and unblameworthy kind of on the same track as uh, yeah. Francisco's question. Because you were talking about the addict who, who repeatedly does something even though he knows it's wrong. What about in the case where he's already seeking help but relapses? Is he still culpable for that or not? Because he knows it's wrong, but because it's an addiction, he does it.
0: So his conscience is... Um, is right in that it knows the correct thing, it's, it's evaluating things properly, but he's not following it, therefore it's an evil right conscience. To what extent is he to blame? To what extent is he free in making his moral, ju- his moral acts? That's a slightly different question from what we're looking at today. Conscience is primarily about the question of figuring out what's right and wrong and whether we're doing it. But generally speaking, the principle is that your guilt is reduced in as much as your freedom is reduced. But it's also generally speaking the case you're never not free. Now, if you've got a mental illness and you're seeing things that aren't there and therefore... I can remember I had a someone come to the rectory repeatedly who would see dragons around the room. Now, if he killed one of those dragons, he wouldn't be morally blameworthy if he killed a person that was there yeah um, because his, his, his brain isn't functioning properly so there's just no freedom there um. other thoughts questions scenarios
1: in a situation where the conscience is perplexed And there's two situations that both seem bad. But you can determine that one seems less bad if you make a decision. Are you supposed to make the decision that is less bad or are you supposed to not act?
0: Well, the distinction in the manuals was if it's possible to not act at all, then you're in the doubtful category and you shouldn't act at all. If you have to act, so the trolley dilemma, then do what at least seems less evil. Um, And there are situations when right now if I do nothing, either the children are gonna go hungry or um, somebody's not gonna get picked up after school. What's the the least, I feel I'm going to sin either way, but what's the least significant sin?
3: How does that have to do with the, um, like a like, candidate, two candidates for election? Because, like, the, the duty in America is, yeah people claim it's your duty to vote, but then if there's two candidates that are, both have some moral that is...
0: And there isn't, there isn't a universal right and wrong there. so I think there are some situations when the act that gets noted by the corrupt government is the people refusing to vote at all. Um, and that can be a catalyst for change. A lot of the time voting for the lesser of the two evils is politically the only option. Um, That somehow strikes me as a, another scenario again. Um, I think in the doubtful conscience category, it's about postponing the decision rather than not making one. So you're waiting until somehow you find out more information. The perplexed is somehow you can't wait. And if the decision included the option to do nothing, and that would also have evil consequences, then that somehow would also be a decision. Um.
1: And a doubtful conscience can become a perplexed conscience if you wait and then there's no more time to wait.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, The manuals before the council loved these kind of scenarios, Um, just like some ethics books love the the trolley dilemmas and think that's... um, Let's, uh, page three, footnote eight, let's look at an example from St. Thomas that just seems so wild as an example, um, but it is the example he gives. Um, That is the one. OK, who's going to read that for me? Um, Which page? page 3, uh, footnote 8. Page three. Yeah, so we're going back. Whether okay. so the will is evil when it is at variance with erring reason? So just to, what's the question here? So the will, whether it is evil if it goes against a mistaken judgment of the conscience. So the conscience is wrong, erring reason, the will doesn't do what the mistaken conscience says. So the will kind of by mistake does the right thing. Does that mean the will is actually evil? That's the question. Michael. So. Since
1: the object of the will is that which is proposed by the reason, as stated above, from the very fact that a thing is proposed by the reason as being evil, the will by tending thereto becomes evil. For not only indifferent matters can receive the character of goodness or malice accidentally, but also that which is good can receive the character of evil, or that which is evil can receive the character of goodness on account of the reason apprehending it as such. For instance, to refrain from fornication is good, yet the will does not tend to this good except insofar as it is proposed by the reason. If therefore the erring reason propose it, the will tends to it as to something evil. Consequently, will is evil, because it wills evil, not indeed that which is evil in itself, but that which is evil accidentally, through being apprehended as such by the reason. We must therefore conclude that, absolutely speaking, every will at variance with reason, whether right or erring, is always evil.
0: That uh. With a lot of parsing that gets a bit confusing there, but you're following what he's saying. The fuller quote it gets even more spectacular. So he says, even with respect to fornication. Um, so one of the examples the Scholastics uh, liked was when you're mistaken about whether it's your wife that you're sleeping with. You think, how does that mistake happen? But uh, you have uh, a twin wife. You have a twin wife. Yeah. Okay. Or <laughs> Um shit, y- <laughs> yeah, I think it's yeah um, or a scenario, you marry your wife at the age sixteen, you then go off to fight in the war and you're gone ten years, and you come back um, you last saw her when she was sixteen, you're now twenty six um it's quite possible to be mistaken about whether she's your wife or not. Actually, it's not your wife, it's her younger sister. And her younger sister always had the hots for you to begin with. Um, and so she seduces you, but you think she's your wife. Yeah. So it is actually the right thing to go to bed with her. Or rather, it's the good thing to go to bed with her, even though it's the wrong thing yeah it's it's wrong in that the judgment is mistaken, but it's good in that your will is following it what you think is right, whereas if she just looks good to you and you're not really bothering to make the effort to find out um. then it's blameworthy. Um, Or you think it's your wife's younger sister who actually you preferred anyway Um, but it turns out it it actually is your wife then you shouldn't go to bed with her even though it would be the right thing to do. You see... (laughs) So so the medieval hunter didn't like trolley dilemmas. This, these are the dilemmas <laughs> they like to parse with. Um, yeah. So you've got a duty to figure out what's right and wrong. And if you don't bother to really find out what's right or wrong, uh, you're to blame for what you're doing. And even if you kind of mistakenly end up doing what is, technically speaking, right, Because it turns out she is your wife, but you thought she wasn't, then actually you are guilty as if she wasn't your wife. You're acting in evil, in bad conscience. That's when you hear the priest say, You did what? (laughs) Okay. Let's sum this up with an example or some comments on page 5. You'll see there's a big appendix here that we're not going to go through on um, some of the Thomistic, Scholastic categories which actually aren't in the Catechism but I've included them there if you want to follow that up. So, page 5, I sum up conscience, a voice that demands, not a voice that excuses. I say there's a mistaken notion that conscience is the ultimate get-out clause to avoid any awkward moral teachings. You hear people say I don't care what the church says, it's okay with my conscience. So in contrast, the classic examples of history indicate that a man of conscience is a man who suffers for inconvenient moral truths. So St. Thomas More the Martyr um, said he was the king's good servant but God's first and died a martyr to conscience. Whereas the doctors in the Second World War who cooperated with the Nazis in the concentration camps, those doctors failed to use their conscience or failed to follow it. Now a contemporary example that sadly is becoming increasingly problematic is Catholic pharmacists. So say conscience should cause them to refuse to prescribe various products even if this means losing their jobs. So Pope Benedict in a statement that actually has been um, I haven't footnoted here but re-echoed by Pope Francis not that long ago he said to the Federation of Pharmacists meeting in Rome um, he said the Federation is called to face the question of conscientious objection which is a right that must be recognized for people exercising this profession so, to enable them to not collaborate directly or indirectly in supplying products that have clearly immoral purposes, such as, for example, abortion or euthanasia. The conscience has, the pharmacist needs to say, My conscience says I can't go along with this. I know you want this product, I know it's there on the shelf, my conscience says I cannot give it to you. I know, no, um, yeah
1: the people who are like producing it? Um,
0: yeah, you mean they shouldn't be producing like, it?
1: Are they still, still pharmacists?
0: Oh. oh yeah, well no, that would be right. So there's a further battle on the chain. Yeah. There are people that are cooperating in the production of that. They likewise, yeah, shouldn't be doing that. Um, I can just briefly read what's here. American law, just briefly, different US states vary in terms of whether pharmacists have a right of conscience. Some states have taken that right away, so the the pharmacist doesn't have the legal grounds to say, I know you want this product, but the law says I, in conscience, am not required to sell it to you. Some states have taken that right away. and I note that a pharmacist needs to be willing to lose their job rather than do what's wrong. And I say, historically, the most common form of religious persecution is not martyrdom, but the restriction of freedoms. When someone is denied the right to work in accordance with their freedom of religion, then we need to recognize this as religious persecution. So if someone had a question, comment... It
2: was just... Um what brother was saying, how uh, about like buying shares in the stock market of a company that his whole job is not producing contraceptives, but they also do that.
0: Um, what you're referring to is what in moral theology we call cooperation with evil, which is different from doing evil. Um, so, we need to analyze whether our cooperation is close or remote. Um, there's always, kind of just by breathing the same air, some kind of indirect distant cooperation. There's also, though, cooperation that is so close that we are morally responsible and we may not go along. So, the nurse that gives the scalpel to the doctor doing the abortion operation—that um, is close cooperation. The procedure can't happen without the nurse. For um,
2: well, the guy building the abortion clinic, is equally
0: close. Equally close. Um, in some ways, mm,
2: even the worker that
0: that cleans, the janitor that cleans. Now, let's suppose he's not cleaning an abortion clinic, he's cleaning a hospital, and there are multiple operating theatres he cleans. And in those operating theatres, multiple different types of procedures happen. That's different from a Planned Parenthood clinic, where the only thing going on there that he's cleaning and making possible is abortion. That is beyond today's topic, but um, the general thing, conscientious objection, you need to follow your conscience. So what have we been looking at today? Conscience, what is it? Various metaphors, a place, a voice. This looks to you as if this is what God's saying. This is God's law. If it seems to you to be God's law, then that's what you've got to do. But you also need to educate your conscience to make correct judgments in that regard so that the judgments that in a good conscience you are following is a good right conscience.